Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 51. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier on in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are VMware solution engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, uh, this week we're talking to a former manager of yours, right? Uh, Charlie Nickel. Yeah, that guy. I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about him on the air, but no. Cool dude. I really enjoyed working for him. He's the one who hired me at VMware. Thought it'd be fun to pick his brain on what it's like to be a manager. In fact, he didn't actually want to be a manager. I won't spoil it, though. Yeah, yeah. That that was an interesting part of it, that, that transition to manager. So I think that was the basic idea and thesis for our discussion with him was you know, that transition from individual contributor to manager. Um, I really liked what he had to say about building relationships in multiple different parts of the organization at multiple different levels, um, hiring. Uh, he even had to fire somebody pretty early on in his uh, tenure as a manager. So hearing all of that was really, really interesting. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the fact that he was encouraged to go and do something, but told that he didn't have to do it by himself, that someone was going to help him get there. And I think that we all need good managers to help us get to new places we didn't think we could go. Yeah, it's very true. You know, if every um, opportunity and challenge came with somebody saying, by the way, I'm here to backstop you and to support you on your journey to learn how to do that, I think we'd all be in better positions, you know, <laughs> um, that would just be better. But uh, anyway, let's get into the interview with Charlie Nickel. And by the way, it's Nerd Journey, so part one of two. Charlie Nickel, welcome to the Nerd Journey podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Hey, Charlie. Uh, so uh, before we started recording, you promised to say smart manager things while we record. So I hope you can live up to that standard. Yeah, you set the bar nice and high, Nick. I appreciate that. I'll do my best. I should have given you the chance to say who you are and what you do first, but I wanted to get the first punch in. I knew you would. I expected it. I had the, the chin nice and uh, ready for it. Yeah, so I'm a senior manager for Enterprise Central uh, for VMware. I've got a team of pre-sales SEs that are out in the field from Wisconsin to Texas, and a little bit left and right of that. I've been with VMware for about eight years, had a couple of different jobs within VMware from pre-sales SE to SE manager to senior manager. Awesome. Do you mind just taking a few minutes and, and give us a little bit about your job history before you came to VMware and became a manager? Yeah, you bet. Uh, like most folks that are in the pre-sales industry, I spent some time in IT. Uh, that started in high school with you know, creating email accounts and deploying 
tangent computers, if that takes you back a little bit, installing Windows from a CD, all the way up through various IT jobs at uh, different places. Um, spent some time doing, uh, really cutting my teeth at a gaming company called Multimedia Games, who is now owned by Every, setting up very low latency, high re highly redundant systems for bingo and lottery, which was spread out sort of a hub and spoke fashion around the world. Uh, I think Mexico City, Israel, California, all over the place. Really got into fiber channel storage and highly available SQL clusters and lots of fun with funky AD replication that went across multiple domains and that kind of thing. And then cut my teeth with doing some virtualization there with uh, ESX 2.x and uh, even some GSX for our developers. Uh, and then went and worked for a reseller that we bought all of our gear from at that company uh, called SQL Data Systems, local here in Austin, where I really started to learn, you know, it was a, a PSO job. So I did a little bit of pre-sales, a little bit of post-sales. And I always say that those post-sales years are kind of like dog years. You know, every year that you're in post-sales is like seven years of being a, an IT admin or being in operations because you're only called in to either stand up new greenfield stuff and migrate brownfield to greenfield or to come in and fix the nastiest, hairiest problems they have. So spent some time basically selling servers, network, storage, VMware to customers, coming in, installing it, and then spending a week teaching the IT staff how to operate it, and then handing it off. I did that for a little while and then worked in Home Depot's data center on the Windows engineering team, which also had a fair amount of VMware, as you might uh, imagine, by proxy, and then did a bunch of work with their storage team, storage migrations, things like that. Um, and it helped set up all their blade infrastructure and configure all that good stuff, migrate a lot of stuff to from physical to virtual. And then from there, went to Dell. Uh, at Dell, I was on a team under Global Solutions Engineering and then a sub-team under that called Virtualization Solutions Engineering, where we wrote white papers on stacks of hardware and how either Hyper-V, Zen Server, or vSphere would be most adequately installed and then performance tuned to get the most bang for your buck out of those systems. Uh, so tech marketing would come hand us this stack of hardware and say, hey, figure out how all this stuff works. So that was a lot of fun. You know, I got to work directly with vendors like Broadcom and Intel and there was no Googling. Uh, it, you know, the, we were the ones, we were the document that you were going to Google. So um, that was a lot of fun. And I got to work in a really cool lab with a bunch of guys that had PhDs, so I really had no business being in there. But the uh, real-world experience that I had was what they wanted there. Um, also worked on a big project called Viz that never saw the light of day, but was a the, the, the vision of it was uh, a piece of software that could control your whole data center, which might sound strangely familiar to the STDC. And had some components in it like Dynamic Ops, which you know VMware, of course, later bought and turned into uh, V-Realize Automation. Uh, and then from there, I went to VMware. Um, and, and what really led me to VMware from there was in that lab, we would often have either high-profile customers or execs from, say, Intel or someone like that come into the lab, and they wanted to see what Dell was working on, what were our bleeding-edge R&D initiatives. And so I would demo the products that I was working on, and that was when I first got the taste of explaining technology to someone in a very concise format. Sometimes people that weren't really deep technically, but were higher level technology executives. And so I didn't really know that the pre-sales SE position existed in the way that it does until I did that 
at Dell. And I got a taste of that and kind of became the, the demo guy for the lab. And I thought, man, this is a lot of fun. Uh, really enjoy doing this. And then stumbled across the, the VMware uh, inside SE job and had a, had a buddy that worked over there and he asked me to come interview for it. And, um, you know, the rest is history. <clears throat> Jumped into VMware from there. And um, I think the, the SE job is uh, the best job in the world, as Dave Gregory often says, our VP. Um, but it's just a blast. A lot of fun to explain technology to people and see the light bulbs go off in your audience and watch them soak it in. Of course, VMware makes that easy because we have so many good solutions and products that it's easy to get behind. Thanks for that overview, Charlie. Maybe you could talk a bit about that transition from that individual contributor role as an SE to becoming a manager of SEs. What what was that like? What was it? How did the opportunity come around? Is that something you're shooting for the entire time? Yeah, not at all. Uh, that sounded like a terrible idea to me when I joined VMware. I uh, my career path, you know, my vision for my career had kind of ended. You know, v being a VMware SE was it, and everybody I worked on the team with, those were all the smartest guys from all the IT shops around, uh, and I was easily the dumbest guy in the room and uh, very humbled to be working on that team. And it was kind of like, hey, I made it. I'm an SE for VMware. You know, I was pretty proud to look at that signature. And <clears throat> as uh, as time went on, um, I did, I had a lot of success in that role. Um, we were, you know, on the inside dealing with customers in the field. And so we did a very high volume type type role where we did lots of demos, had lots and lots of phone calls. Uh, we were measured on that, uh, metriced on that, and got the opportunity to work on some large deals, got the opportunity to go travel into the field, and I thought, well, do I want to go be a field SE, or you know, what does my career look like? My manager started poking on me a little bit and saying, hey, what would you like to do next? And I thought, you know, I'd like to be in kind of a CTO role someday, sort of uh, uh, get to do the Chris Wolf thing, and or the Cameron Haight thing, <clears throat> who wasn't there at the time, but... I thought that individual contributor sort of uh, architect, you know, advisor to the company, maybe I'll go be uh, Duncan Epping or something, you know. Um, and I looked at uh, a couple of different roles like that. And my, my boss at the time, who uh, was my boss for seven years at VMware, encouraged me to go into leadership. And I thought, man, I really don't want to do that. You know, he kind of described it that there's two paths. You can go into leadership and manage technical people, or you can go be an individual contributor and sort of move up that senior SE, staff SE, you know, principal architect type path. And I definitely thought the individual contributor route was for me. I didn't want to deal with, you know, telling people to be at work on time and, you know, tuck your shirt in and uh, following up on TPS reports and, you know, sitting in meetings for the rest of my life. You know, I wanted to stay close to the technology. That was my passion. And I already felt like as being a pre-sales SE, you know, you're, you're on a quota. So you're already partially as a technologist, you're already partially selling out, right? You're, you're kind of a sales guy now you, you've hopped the fence. Um, so it was, I, I think it was really important for me to maintain that technical credibility uh, early on in my career. That was, that was something that I held near and dear. And so the idea of being a, you know, an empty suit manager sounded uh, not attractive at all. Uh, but my, my manager that I had at that time was the best manager I'd ever had. Uh, he always had this uncanny ability to know when I had too much on my plate and take a little off. 
but he also knew when to add a little something to my plate because I was getting bored even before I knew it. You know, he would put a, an extra project out there or give me some extra responsibility. And I would think, man, how am I going to do that? Um, and then I would just absorb it. And he just had a really good ability to do that. And I thought, well, if I'm going to try this manager thing, I really trust this guy who's telling me that I'm well suited for it. And I've got the best example in the world. So if it's going to work, these conditions couldn't be any better. So why not? You know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And so he groomed me for a little while. There wasn't really a role, but I started sitting in on some meetings. I sat in some meetings for sat in on some meetings for him, ran some team meetings, you know, things like that, and started getting some exposure to some of the leadership stuff. You know, I would do his weekly report when he was out on vacation, you know, just some of those uh, some of those things that a manager would do and get a kind of a taste for the role. And it was funny because once he put that bug in my ear and the idea was in my head, it started started to marinate a little bit and I would look for opportunities to lead on the team, maybe mentor a new person or if I saw something that all the sales managers needed in a meeting, I might go speak up and say, hey, well, what if all the SEs trained all of the sales reps on vSphere 5.x, you know, at the time. <clears throat> and so when I started, uh, it's kind of like if you uh, buy a blue car, then all you see are blue cars everywhere, right? When you start thinking about maybe my career path is to go into leadership and, and manage people, then all of a sudden I started to see all these opportunities, you know, as a result. And um, we got a new VP there on the inside and he did his sort of intro all hands meeting in person there in the Austin office. And uh, at the end of that, I went up and introduced myself and I said, Hey, some of these things that you said sound really good. I know those are, those are definitely needs in this organization. You know, I've been here for a couple of years and I know you're coming over from a hardware vendor and may not be that familiar with this huge stack of solutions we have. If you'd like, I'd be happy to kind of give you a high level overview of how those things all fit together because it can be really confusing. We basically take a V and put it in front of a noun and call it a product at VMware. And just when you learn what it is, we're going to change the name of it eight times and how it's licensed and who might buy it, you know, in the field versus the inside and how it's all relevant to you. And so I'd be happy to, you know, help bring you up to speed. And he was like, that would be great. So I had a weekly one-on-one -on -one with him and within a month he brought me into his director meetings. Uh, there was no, on-site manager for my team. And he, th he said, well, I want an SE presence in these meetings when we make decisions. So Charlie, come sit in these meetings. So I developed a relationship with all the inside sales directors and the VP pretty quickly from having sat in those meetings. Uh, and so when the opportunity came up about a year later, it was a really sort of obvious fit. I went and talked to the inside sales director. I set my own interview before the exiting manager had left. He had announced it, but he hadn't left yet. And so I just went ahead and set my own interviews with the, the key stakeholders and said, hey, this is something I'd like to do. Do you think that I'd be a fit? If so, you know, do I have your blessing? If not, what can I work on? And um, so when that position came open, you know, obviously I interviewed for it with my manager and, and his leader, uh, but it was the, the table was already kind of set you know, at that point. Now, were you... It sounds like you were very calculated in your approach and getting connected to other leaders after your manager initially recommended it. Um, did you did you get any blowback from those people about um, you're not you're not thinking a certain way or we need you to improve on X Y Z as you went through this process? 
Yeah, that's a good question on the, you know, what can you improve on? That was something I early on, I got in the habit of asking my manager at the end of every one-on-one. And if you ask that early, you're used to getting that feedback. You know, if you wait two years to ask that question and you're not getting feedback, then they might say, well, you can improve on this, 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 and this. You're terrible at that. And that might all be true. Uh, you know, but if you haven't ever asked the question or and they haven't ever volunteered that information, then that stuff's going to going to build up, you know. Um, so I think what helped make that an easy, comfortable conversation and, and sort of collaborative versus, you know, you're terrible at all these things was that I had asked that pretty early on. And when I was sitting in on those manager meetings, when I wasn't a manager, I would say, what can we do better as an SE team? And one of my peers, Jeff Everhard, started doing this early on, he would send out surveys to his sales reps at the end of every quarter. Hey, what can I do better? What would you like to see more of from me? Would you like more enablement? Would you like more one-on-ones? Would you like me to leave you alone more? You know, would you like me to sit on the row for a day a week or an hour a day or, or whatever? And so we pretty reg- and I saw, I stole that idea from him because all my good ideas are stolen from smarter people. And I started doing that with my sales reps. And so that attitude is something I brought with me to those meetings. And I think Part of it was, you know, I didn't really feel like I had an official seat at those tables, you know, when I first came in. So it was like, these guys are offering me something by letting me sit in on their meetings and kind of be a fly on the wall. So, hey, what can I do to help you? What would you like to see more out of our team? So it sort of naturally evolved, you know, pretty quickly into them telling me what they were what they were wanting from the teams. So then when I sat down to interview with them, I had this I had the, the answers to the test, right? They had told me everything they wanted from that organization. So in the interview, I spent a lot of time asking them what they wanted from me as a leader. I would review the things that I knew they wanted out of my team because I'd asked them already and sat in those meetings. But then, you know, out of what are you looking for in a leader? You know, and and, and how do you think I would fit in that role? And, or do you think I would fit in that role? It was just an open and honest conversation. You know, it wasn't awkward because those relationships were there. Now, you don't always get the chance to do that, right? I mean, I had a very ideal scenario in, in sort of ramping up to this leadership role. But I think the things that made it easy when I got there, it's kind of like if you go watch, you know, uh, Michael Phelps swim in the pool, not that I'm at that level of leadership, but you know, if you watch him swim in the pool, he makes it look easy, right? People that are good at stuff, they make it look easy. And the reason it looks easy is because they put a lot of hard work in up front. You know, they spend a lot of hours tuning their craft. And so I didn't really know that's what I was doing when I was asking those questions. I just had this behavior modeled for me by a lot of successful people. And I watched what they did, and they asked a lot of questions about how to get better. So I just made that part of my sort of ritual when I would meet people. And so I didn't know it at the time, but it was setting myself up for success in terms of evolving into a manager. You know, um, it, you know it also helped that I knew that whole team, all of the SEs, and it was a from player to coach kind of transition. So I, I had some confidence from those guys, I think. I'm really curious how the other members of the team felt when you started going into these leadership meetings and they weren't. Were did they have any uh, animosity toward you as a result because they wanted the same opportunity, or did they just kind of shrug it off, or maybe you didn't even talk to them about it? I don't know. Just real curious about that. Um, I don't, I don't think there was a bunch of competition on the team for that job. I think most of those guys had the same attitude that I did towards leadership. They were like, no thanks, I don't want to do that. I want to be a technologist. Uh, there's not a lot of people looking for a way out of that job. You know, that that SE role is a really good one. 
And so you got pretty happy people that are pretty constantly challenged. Uh, I think that's kind of rare, though. I think on a lot of a lot of times when the the leader position on a team opens, you generally have a couple of folks that are interested in that position, and there is some competition. I've definitely seen that in, on other teams, but there wasn't really anybody else that was um, expressing interest. Um, they may have been uh, in the background, but it, I didn't ever know about it. How about the um, discussion with the VP initially? Did you feel that was a risky move? Like I, in my mind, like you said that, and I immediately went, "Ooh, that's a little bit risky." <laughs> um, you know, there was something that he said in his in his AHOD, his his all hands meeting early on that he was coming from um, the voice over IP hardware world, and he said, "Look, there's." I'm going to need to lean on you to teach me what we do here. You know, I've always admired VMware from afar and it's had a great culture, but he had said something to that effect that he was looking for us to help him. And I thought, you know, why not offer that? Why not offer to, to help him out, help get him up to speed. And it's funny because that actually set up a pattern that I still do today of offering to new leaders, new sales leaders, the well, even even technology leaders, honestly, especially if they come from outside VMware, but to new leaders in the organization that that I'm in, I offer to help sort of get bring them up to speed. And now, you know, it's more of a it's a higher level, right? At that time, I was an SE and I knew how to demo every product and all that good stuff. So I had to take my normal presentation and make it a little higher level for you know inside sales manager consumption. If you want to keep their attention, you don't need to do a demo, right? You don't need to go into a deep dive. This isn't a 300-level conversation. You're going to lose them, and, and they're not going to care. So I had to think about that, you know, what's in it for me, just like we do with customers. And so I thought, if I was an inside sales manager, what would I need to know about this product? You know, is this something that my inside sales people are going to sell, or is this something really more for the field? But how does it fit in the picture, and how can I teach them to tell the story and help them be better coaches to their to their salespeople, and especially if you know, if you think about their perspective, uh, an inside sales manager is going to come in, say they're from outside VMware, and have sales reps on the team who are no doubt experts at selling the stuff and have been there for a while, and that can be intimidating for them. So, how can I help their transition be a little smoother, and how can they build confidence with their team that they're good leaders? Because they're not going to come in and know more than their team about our stuff. It's just not going to be possible. They might know more about selling, or they might have some good tips and tricks on how to drive revenue and things like that, but not necessarily depth in our solutions. So I thought this was a way I could help them close the gap. So similarly with the VP, it seemed like kind of a no brainer. And I sort of came up with that idea on the spot. <clears throat> and ever since then, I've done it with uh, every new leader that's come in. And the uh, one, because I just like teaching people. It's like, it's just a passion. It's a lot of fun. You know, as SEs, I think we're, we're always teachers as well as learners as students, but What's interesting about that dynamic, sort of an interesting byproduct that I didn't plan on happening, but it's definitely an outcome, is that you initially give them something. You know, if you think about any negotiation class, there's always, you're supposed to exchange things with people. And I didn't mean it in this way, like, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. But you're giving them something useful immediately. And so then if I had to go to them and say, hey, now there's a sales rep that I need to talk to you about that we're really struggling with, you know, they're not doing great on the phone or, you know, they're scheduling 
one of my SEs at the last minute or whatever it may be. If you have to have a tough conversation, you've already built credibility with them. You've already built some rapport, you know, and it's a, quite honestly, I didn't start it for that reason, but it's a really neat byproduct that happens, a really neat benefit. But I've also just found that, you know, at the beginning, it's what I would have wanted. And people did that for me in a different, you know, different capacity. They helped ramp me up at VMware, both the internal navigation of the company to our products, to how to sell stuff. Cause I didn't know anything about selling when I joined, it was my first, you know, real technology sales gig. So I just wanted to give people what they had given me, you know, in terms of helping me ramp. And so I thought, well, if this can make their, that's the most intimidating part I think about coming to VMware is trying to learn all the products and solutions and what they do and how they fit and how to tell that story concisely. So if I could help close the gap, it just seemed like a, it didn't seem scary at the time, you know, when I when I asked the VP back that. You know, looking back, it probably was somewhat risky. But what's the worst he's going to say? No, okay, we won't do no, it. No. <laughs> Actually, I meant I, maybe for me, it's a political risk, right? Because you're bypassing not only all the managers that maybe want to have a relationship with that VP, but all the technical directors that want to have a relationship with the VP. Like, um, you know, maybe the the peer, you know, SE director or the, you know, maybe not the VP. Right. But, um, you know, those, those levels. So yeah, that's a good point. So this was kind of a unique situation in that my boss was out of California and his boss was out of Ohio. So there wasn't an SE leader on site there in Austin. You know, this was an inside organization of about 250 sellers and I don't know, 20 or so inside sales managers and three or four directors. So, there wasn't really anybody else in a technical role, in a technical leadership role there on site. And that was kind of unique. You know, I, I think that's definitely one of those Malcolm Gladwell outliers moments where there was this really unique opportunity and I chose to go capitalize on it. Right. Um, and, and we did. I had done a lot of that teaching sales reps via whiteboard one on one type situations. I've been doing that for a little over a year at that point, and which I didn't really know was part of the job when I when I signed up for the job. Uh, you know, there's an enablement team, but everybody comes in at different levels. And that was a big part of one on one. So, what I didn't know the whole time that I was practicing, you know, when I'm one on one type whiteboard coaching training sessions, we would do role plays and things like that with sales reps. What I was do was honing my craft to be able to go do this at a, a VP level. You know, um, and, and comfortably do it because I was confident because I'd done it a whole bunch. Had I not been doing all that, you know, I probably wouldn't have been confident enough to go talk to the VP. So, you know, that's kind of one of those life lessons of you never know what you're learning, what character is being developed or what craft is being honed in the middle of the, the work that you're doing that you may use later. Got it. So now you've transitioned to this management role and you're you're adding you know additional responsibilities to you know that you weren't usually doing when you're an individual contributor right so now you're hiring you're managing performance of a team and you're responsible for letting people go if that's um necessary too like it how how was that transition um adding on those responsibilities things that you're you know maybe outside of of the the obvious uh list of responsibilities for, you know, that an individual contributor might see a manager doing. Yeah, it was way harder than I thought it was going to be. I thought, well, hey, I'm a top performer on this team by all of the metrics that we look at. 
So I'll become the manager, and then I'll just go tell them to all do it the way that I did it, right? And then we'll have this great team. That's that's how management works, right? Um, that might be how management works. That's not how leadership works. Uh, I made some of those first-time manager mistakes very quickly. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I had said to my boss initially, I was like, you know, not, not to be, I don't want to be cocky, but I've always really wanted to be the best on every team I've ever been on, you know, and I worked really hard to get there. And I won't say that I was the best SE on the team, but I definitely, good luck outworking me. I was definitely not the smartest, but um, by all of the metrics that were measurable, I was always in the the top of those metrics. And one of the things I told him when he approached me about being a manager was that, you know, I'd, I'm not going to get a full team of top performers. And I know how to speak to someone who's motivated. You know, I know how to dangle that carrot in front of someone who's driven and wants that next promotion or that next job or is hungry for more responsibility. What I don't know how to do is to motivate the bottom performers and the people that aren't motivated and the people that don't like their job. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how to do any of that. He was like, ah, you'll figure it out. I'll help you. Okay. I trust you. (laughs) And so, um, when, when I started, we, uh, were right at the, at the end of a quarter and I was having to do a bunch of stuff with compensation and I had to see behind the curtain real quickly, you know, all the operational things. And man, it was scary, you know, because as an, as an individual contributor, you think all that stuff just works. You know, it's like, if, uh, if you know someone who doesn't know technology all that well and they go to log into something and they're like, oh, why doesn't this website work? And you as the technologist go, because there's four million things that have to happen right every time you click on something for it to work. Um, it's like when I, when I talk to my mom on the, on the cell phone and she, the, the call drops and she's like, I just don't know what happened. I, I don't understand. And I'm like, well, if you knew everything that had to go right for that to happen, you would, uh, you would not be surprised when a call drops, right? It's the same thing when you as a manager, you see behind the curtain and you realize that the only reason some of these things happen is because managers step in, see the problem sometimes before it happens or mid problem and go solve it and make sure that this department talks to that team that works with this tool. And you have built a relationship such that you can get that sales ops person to go help you out with a commission commissions issue. And that the splits across another country only happen when you make those people play nice and they're not really incentivized to play nice unless I go get them to play nice. And if they don't know who I am, why are they going to help me? And so I realized real quickly that I had to go build a bunch of relationships with all these teams that I one didn't know existed and two didn't know how to contact them or who they were. And a lot of them weren't there locally, you know, in Austin, whereas prior I had worked almost directly with everyone face to face and I could walk over to their cube and quickly, you know, build a relationship or ask a question or help them out. So that was like the first big punch in the face was, oh man, I got to make sure that my whole team gets paid right. And if I don't do anything, they won't get paid right. In that unique um, quarter that we were in, we had some funky stuff going on. And there's really not anybody else whose job it is to make sure that happens. Like that's all on me. And I don't know how to solve that problem. And there's no Google for that, right? If a server's rebooting constantly, you can look up some error logs and you can Google some things, but there's no way to Google this stuff. You know, you got to go just build relationships and, and solve different problems that aren't necessarily technology related. Um, as for the hiring firing part of it, I had to cut my teeth real quickly in the third week I had to lay somebody off and I knew about it from day two. You know, it's one of those things 
as a manager, you always know things before the rest of the organization does. And sometimes I, I struggled with that. You know, that, that's not a lot of fun, especially if you know it's bad news. You know, it, it would weigh on me that I couldn't be upfront and, and honest with my team about what was going on. Sometimes you just can't. That's the way the, the, the business works. And it's not being dishonest. It's just that there's some things that certain layers of the company people know, and there's a right time for that information to be disclosed. And so, you know, having to walk through um, letting someone go was was very tough um, in, in week three of the job. And my existing manager helped with that tremendously. HR helped with that tremendously. And my sales director even said, hey, come into my office. Let's practice this conversation. And he we practiced with him throwing every difficult question back at me. He acted like he was angry so I could go through feeling those emotions and looking someone in the eye that was asking me tough questions. And, you know, I got to go through all of that stuff and HR provided us a very good script and all that good stuff. So, you know, I had to learn very quickly what that was like and uh, it was not fun, you know, but at the same time, that's probably one of the scariest things you have to do as a manager. It's definitely, I don't know if there's much that I can think of that's worse than that. And if you just go, run right into that fear head on in week three. Well, you know, it's all, all kind of downhill from here, you know, unless I have to go do a whole bunch more of that. Right. Which right. fortunately I haven't had to. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, th those things were all very surprising to me. I didn't expect to um, have to understand so much about sales operations and, and have to, you know, lay someone off very early on um, in my career. And then of course there's the obvious things like, I've got to go now sit in more meetings and I've got to learn how to lead this team of people who aren't all the same personality as me, who may or may not be happy that I'm in this job, who may or may not be happy in their job, who have their own set of unique home circumstances and life experiences that cultivate who they are. And, you know, I, I took a lot of, I basically looked at every manager I'd ever had and all of the things that they did well and sort of took each of their different attributes that I liked and, you know, mashed that together into the leader that I wanted to be, you know, I stole all of their, their good habits. You know, one easy one was someone said, take a seven minute clock and ask that person to tell them about you and you can't respond seven minutes, right? So you do it both directions. It's a 14 minute meeting. So that's half of your 30 minute one-on-one. -on -one. You would think that that's easy. It's actually really hard, especially for me not to talk and just listen for seven minutes. And you wouldn't believe how much you could find out about someone in seven minutes. And these were guys I had worked with for a couple of years, you know. And I found out all of these really interesting things about them, you know, from like their childhood and, you know, how people were raised from like a parent, step-parent, adoption. Like you find all these things out about people that completely shape who they are and how they respond. And so that's the answer to how do I motivate the person who doesn't seem motivated or who isn't like me, you understand who they are. They're people, you know? And uh, when you get to know them, that really opened it up right out of the gate, you know? And, and again, it was a, a practice that I stole from, the seven-minute practice I stole from a training they'd given us at VMware, but um, understanding who they are was something I stole from my boss, you know, my, my existing manager. And that really helped me start to understand people and how they ticked and what they were motivated by. And... Uh, it was eye-opening to me because I had this really stupid, narrow vision that everyone was motivated by, you know, money and promotions and being really good at their job. And people aren't always at the same place, you know. Yeah.
Very, very true. How about that hiring side? You know, one of the things that um, I think for our audience, you know, at least what we were thinking our audience is, is, you know, people in IT operations, um, you're a hiring manager, you've hired SEs before. And, um, you know, I, it's probably no secret to you, you know, hiring SEs is difficult, right? The ideal candidate has been an SE for three years already in maybe a different area of the country working for your you know, company already, and they just happen to be moving. And then it's somebody else's problem, like backfilling the, the actual other position. You know, but that, that's, that doesn't happen all the time. There's this pool of people who have been SEs maybe at other technology companies. You, know, you have to um, teach them you know, about the, the current company and the current products. But then there's this other pool of IT operations people who maybe could make that jump to SE. Um, what has been your attitude as somebody who's actually made that jump? Uh, what is your view on that? And, and maybe can you offer any advice for people who are trying to do that? Yeah, sure. You know, and we could probably do an entire podcast on hiring um, because it's it's so complex and it's it's so important. You know, I think to to being a manager. Um, I didn't really have an opinion on it, you know, one way or the other, except that I I felt like I had a decent eye for talent because everywhere I went, I just found the smartest person on the team, the smartest guy or gal. And then I would be just obnoxiously attached to their hip pocket. And I wanted to learn everything they did and how they did it, you know. And I thought, well, those are the kind of people. I'll just look for those kind of candidates. Um, doesn't exactly work that way, right? People behave differently in interviews. And you have a whole hour to learn who someone is versus a couple of weeks of watching them do actual work. And so um, <clears throat> I think for the most part, early on I was hiring inside SEs and a lot of those candidates did come from IT operations versus having experience as an SE. Uh, as my team evolved into all inside to mostly inside with some field to half inside, half field to mostly field to now all field, the candidates I look for have changed. And so it really depends specifically on which role you're hiring for as to how I would give someone advice on that. You know, one of the things that I always asked, even early on for the inside SE role, uh, was, are you ready to step away from the keyboard a little bit? You know, you're still going to demo. You're still going to get your hands on the products. At the time, we did not have the hands-on labs like we do today. We had some internal lab type stuff, uh, but it wasn't nearly as robust and accessible as our hands-on labs are today. And so there wasn't as much opportunity to be hands-on keyboard, especially as they are in IT operations. You know, you have to know and understand the tech, but you've got to be able to connect it to the business. And you can say that to 30 people and you'll get 30 answers as to what that means, you know, to quote, understand the business. Um, and my understanding of that is tremendously involved over the past eight years at VMware, especially now being in the field dealing with very large enterprises, many of whom are in the you know fifty billion dollar a year type range. That's that means something totally different to those companies than it does to uh, an SMB. So, you know how do you how do you figure out which of those roles you're best fit for if you're thinking about becoming an SE? You know, and how do you coach those individuals? I think if you like explaining and teaching things to people, then you're a good fit for an SE. You're doing a lot of that whether you're explaining the technology to another IT operations person or to an architect at a higher level, how it plugs into the bigger picture, or to 
a business owner within a company and how it's going to move their business initiatives forward or to a CIO and how this fits into their three to five to 10 year strategy and how it's going to move the needle or to a CEO and how it's going to make money, save money or protect their brand, right? That's about all they care about. So if, if understanding that is something that gets you excited, then this is probably a good fit. If you like presenting in front of people, um, if you like explaining technology to all those different levels from the very technical to the not technical, then this is, you know, this might be a good fit and you're ready to step away from the keyboard a little bit. Uh, you know, if dealing with people gives you hives, you know, if standing up and presenting in front of people makes you so nervous that you can't sleep the night before and you're going to go, you know, yak in the bathroom before the presentation, <laughs> um, unless that's something you like doing, then it might not be a good fit. You know, I've had that discussion with someone who, came in as an SE, he was an IT desktop fella, went and did some server stuff, did everything he was supposed to do to come work on our team after he had asked. Um, we said, hey, you could go get a little bit more experience and come back and be on our team. He was on our team on the inside for a while. Um, and he then went to the field and really struggled with that. He didn't like presenting in front of people all that much. You know, I think he wanted the job, but um, once he got in the job, didn't like it all that much and actually went back to doing IT operations, but was better equipped to do so because now he could speak that business language. Hmm. So, you know, it's like one, one person might say, well, then the SE role wasn't a fit for him. And I would argue that it was a fit for him for that season of his life that gave him very unique experience to be able to talk to the business and understand salespeople and understand how technology connects to the business. Not just that it's got cool widgets and flashy interfaces, but he was now better equipped to go back and work for a big IT organization and advocate for technology that will move those business initiatives forward and speak that language to the business owners within that company. And that was something he didn't really possess as an IT person. Maybe he would have gotten it eventually. Maybe not. I don't know. You know, so what I always look for are people who can communicate really well, both written and verbally, uh, who have a passion for technology and learning. So not just I'm an expert in this and I'm really good at this, but I like learning new technology. You know, I think you, you kind of run into a couple of different camps of people out there in the technology world. They're the folks who are really, really good at what they do. And that's what they like being is really, really good at that one thing, which we can all kind of fall into that trap. There were some things that I excelled in and I really liked for a long time. I loved being the fiber channel storage guy. Um, that's not as big of a deal these days. Right. That's not, you know, that used to be the premier storage. If you if you were serious about storage, it was fiber channel. Well, now there's all this HCI stuff coming in that's largely not. And so um, if you want to just hang on to that technology and not learn anything new, then the SE role will probably frustrate you because you're expected to constantly learn the newest, greatest technology and be able to talk about how it does or doesn't fit for your customer and how to advocate for them. Um, and so <clears throat> I think I've seen people jump in who were experts in an area and liked being really deep in the tech and weren't that excited about learning all the new stuff and weren't excited about having lots of meetings and explaining technology as much as they were implementing the technology. You know, that might be a better fit for a PSO person, right? Really deep understanding of implementation and actually installing the tech, then, you know, that's probably a better fit is to do some services consultant type stuff. Uh, but if um, if you like talking to people and you like solving their problems, 
then then this could be a good fit. I will also say, you know, there's those uh, memes out there that have like the four quadrants and they're like, what I think I do, what my mom thinks I do, what my friends think I do. And it's all these pictures, you know, uh, it's not always standing up in front of the whiteboard and drawing this beautiful picture and everyone going, sure, here's a couple million bucks. You know, you did great. A lot of times it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hostile environments and, and that's with any company. That's not unique to VMware. And uh, you might have to take a little chewing about the things that they're unhappy about before you get the opportunity to go explain the technology to them, right? So you got to be okay with, uh, you got to be okay with that too. You know, you got to be customer focused, um, people oriented and problem solving oriented, I think, to be good at this job. I think if you've been in IT operations, you've probably been in a hostile environment before. So, uh, um, yeah, but that's right. Actually, what you said, <laughs> What you said about um, learning that you know business orientation that that really resonated with me. I, I think when I came to VMware, it was the first time I took a class on selling, and you know we have this class that we teach called value selling, and it was just this eye opener for me, right? Like I think I've said it on the podcast before. I was like, oh, this is why I wasn't getting my my IT projects funded. It was because I wasn't connecting them to what my manager cared about, or was metriced on, or his manager, or the owner of the company. Right, they all cared about very specific things, and you know my IT projects might have connected to those things, but I wasn't linking them, you know, strongly enough, so they didn't understand, you know, why it was important to their, you know, increasing their revenue or increasing quality of service in a way that affected customer operations. So, um, it's just you know when you said that, it, it really resonated. Like if you know i had learned that one thing and immediately went back to it operations i would have been in a, a better it operations person sorry to interrupt you nick yeah for sure no it's okay <clears throat> I, I was going to ask you charlie uh, with the people you've talked to who wanted to become an se or people who may be aspiring to do that at some point uh, how do you get past the i don't know call it a dirty feeling of being considered as part of a sales team does that ever come up in your discussions with candidates? Uh, you know, somewhat. Uh, I think by the time they're interviewing for that role, they understand that it's, you know, that it's a sales role. But I do try to make sure that they are in the right place as it relates to that. So there's some questions that I ask. One, one in particular, I'll ask uh, if they know... I like to ask questions that are really vague that a customer might ask, you know, because a customer might mix up the terms of our products regularly and or there might be sort of lingo that's not the textbook way to say things. Right. So SEs are we're engineers at heart. We like things crisp and zeros and ones and black and white. And if you say it wrong, we're probably going to correct you and, you know, all that good stuff. Right. <clears throat> no, it's not. It's not vCenter server anymore. It's vCenter. Right. Or whatever it may be. So when. Um, when I'm interviewing people, I like to get a feel for whether or not, how they're going to deal with that ambiguity, right? Are you going to feel like it's your job to correct the customer, make them say it right, make you ask the question the right way? Or can you just adapt, you know, on the fly and say, I'll ask a, a candidate what uh, the difference in, ask them what layer two over layer three means. And, you know, if they go into explaining the OSI model, I'll say, okay, well, sort of, yeah, but... Why would someone want to do layer two over layer three? Right, because that's how a customer is going to ask you. Hey, yeah, we're interested in doing layer two over layer three with NSX. Okay, so if you don't know that, that's fine. It doesn't mean that you're you know out of the candidacy. 
But there's a couple of layers that I'll keep asking in that question. I want to get to to find out if you're comfortable explaining technology to the business level. So the next, if they can explain that well and say, oh, we'd like to extend a you know layer two subnet over a layer three connection, so that the IP range at one site can be the same at the other site, and you can migrate VMs seamlessly without having to change the IP addresses. Okay, cool, you get it. I don't need to know how you would configure a router to do that, or if you mission. Uh, competitive technology, you know, Cisco OTV or whatever, great, cool, you have some experience and exposure. Now next, I want to know, why would someone want to do that? What's the benefit? I'll say, oh, well, you know, you don't have to change IP addresses, so it makes DR faster. Okay. Now, if the CIO were sitting in the room, how would you sell that to him in 30 seconds? Okay, so now can you take that technology idea and condense it down to a business idea? And say, well, it's going to shave minutes off your DR time, thereby achieving a better audit. Maybe you're under some sort of audit. Um, or uh, you can say, well, you're going to save money because you can migrate workloads from one data center to another. So if they hike up the rent on you or change the power or whatever, you can your workloads are now portable. Okay, cool. Now I'm the CFO. Sell it to me. All right. And what I'm looking for there is it's going to reduce cost. Right. If you have downtime... How much does that cost your company today? I already have an idea that it's X amount. For most customers, it's X amount. I don't know if that number applies to you, but for the customers I've seen, you know, it's a million dollars a minute in lost revenue, or it costs this much to have your brand um, poorly reflected, like your website's down. <clears throat> so this is going to help you shrink that by $5 million, right? So you want to talk money to a CFO, you want to talk technology concepts to a CIO, you want to talk how it works to the admin and and sort of how it's going to make their life better, right? And so I'll keep asking that question, and I could do that for any technology, that's just the one that I give the example of, to, to see if someone understands how things you know, connect to the business, but also understand the technology side of it. Now, the next logical question is, does that mean they don't get the job because they can't answer that question? No, not at all. In fact, I usually explain what I'm looking for at the end of it, and then I'd like to see what their response is, right? They go, oh, okay, so I might do this or I might do that. Yes, absolutely. Um, if they're completely lost on it, then I'm starting to wonder if they're going to be able to make that transition to understanding, you know, how the business connects to the technology. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. And uh, I remember that question since you actually hired me, but yeah. Good stuff. I, I bet you do. I can only take partial credit for that. Uh, I have to give John some credit for, for shooting you over to me. But yeah. It was uh, many sessions of the John White School of Mentoring. And if you're out there listening and you want to be part of that school, send that tweet out to at Nerd Journey for pricing and packaging today. Well, Nick, I, I don't know if we called it out right there, but, you know, Charlie says that he has a, an eye for, for talent, and yet he still hired you. Yeah, I know. Can you believe that? <laughs> I, I actually uh, thought that everything he had to say about um, that process of hiring was, like, really well thought out. And, and it's something that I haven't had to think about because that's not my responsibility but I think the more that you empathize with those uh, people who are in that role, I think the better that you can get at projecting yourself into being somebody that a person who's in that position would want to hire. And he really you know, called out some things that he's looking for. 
I, I really <laughs> liked that list and I went, mm, yeah, maybe you need to uh, uh, have a list like that, you know, that you assume that they have um, while you're applying for a job. Yeah, that's good. I really liked the way Charlie had a process for figuring out what a good manager should be. He took the positive qualities of all the good managers he knew had either worked for or worked with and used that to build what his management strategy or, or ideals were going to be. I, I love that idea. And it was also interesting to hear that as a top performer himself, in the very beginning, he didn't really know how to motivate folks who were not top performers. And I I can totally see how that would be a struggle when you've not had to do it. Definitely. That's why, you know, not all good um, players, if you make a sports analogy, are going to be good coaches, right? And especially the, the most talented people, well, why don't you just work harder and do this? And, you know, don't you really want this? So, um, but he was able to make the transition, right? Which is critically important in that case, I think. Um, so kudos to him and, and something to keep in mind if that is what you want to do, that career path of becoming a manager. And one other thing I want to point out, once Charlie decided to go with his manager's recommendation of pursuing the leadership track, he was all in. He started networking with other people that he knew would be important to getting him to where he needed to be. And those he knew would help him develop the mindset he needed to have. So I, I really think that, honestly, he's a pro at doing that. So that's yeah. a that's a lesson for anyone to take away. Network, network, network. Absolutely. And, you know, learning what it is that you're going to have to do. Learn how to do the job before you have to do the job. I mean, if you're making a jump, I, I mean, again, just in my shoes, I had to make the jump from... Uh, IT operations person into pre-sales technical. So I had to learn how to make that mind, sh mind shift, you know, ahead of time, uh, learn what the job was ahead of time, learn what performance looked like ahead of time uh, so I could project myself into that and then project my past experience into the mind of the hiring manager, right? So it, it, it's true for all of us as we're making any job transition um, no matter what, you know, it could be company to company. It could be position to position. And you can talk to people and get a feel for what it's going to be like. But until you start, it's impossible to explain it. Just like, oh, what's it going to be like when I have a kid? Well, I can only tell you so much. You have to experience it for yourself. Just yeah, like sure. the Matrix. <laughs> I'm sure that that with all that preparation, there's always things that you just didn't know about the job, right? And you... Um, that's incumbent upon the hiring manager to know, oh, this is somebody who's going to be able to, you know, react well to new uh, situations and, and be able to be adaptable. You know, that's, that's part of what they're looking for. So again, something that you can project in your uh, job interview, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that entire conversation was thought provoking. And of course, next week, we're going to have part two, because... It's not in her journey unless there's two parts. That's right. Even if it was a 15-minute interview, it'd be two parts. No, <laughs> kidding. But hey, just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, 
at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. Thank you.